Um, and so Russia as a whole is constricting. Mm. Um, and Vladimir Putin has tried for the last 10 years, all these domestic programs to try to speed up the domestic birth rate. Um, none of it's worked, right? It's been very stubborn. Um, and so if you can't increase your population by you know, improving healthcare or by you know, giving payoffs to mothers to have more children, how do you increase your population? Conquest, right? Mm. And so you have this imperial ideology and the demographic pressures of needing to widen the pie actually feed really nicely yeah. into that, th that message. Why? Because uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't want everything, right? Uh, despite how much the Central Asian states like to talk about it, uh, the Russians are not across the, you know, sort of uh, over the horizon, yeah. right? They're not coming for them imminently. The Rus but the Russians are coming for the Slavs, right? Mm -hmm. The Slavic peoples. Where are the Slavic people located? In Ukraine, mm -hmm. in Belarus, in parts of Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so the idea of a greater Slavic state, a way to sort of to rebuild the glory of the Russian empire has a lot to do with precisely the targets that Vladimir Putin and his advisors are targeting in terms of territorial acquisition. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Welcome to the Border Wars podcast, the number one podcast of all of the Americas, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. I say we're the number one podcast, not because of me, but because of our guests. And today we have a very special guest, a very good friend of mine, someone that I've known for many years, but I think many of you might have even known because you want to follow his work, especially if you're looking at Russia, Iran, international terrorist networks. I mean, we pretty much cover, and it's always interesting because like, you usually find in Washington guys that are like what they call Iran guys, right? Guys that look at Iran, they're experts on looking at the Iranian threat networks. And then in another community, you find Russia guys, right? The Cold War from the Soviet Union. But very ran rarely uh, do you find someone that covers both. But that's Elon Berman. Elon, good to see you. Good to be here. Thanks for coming to the podcast. No, no, no. It's, it's uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, as I always like to say, I used to work on three things. I used to work on terrorism, Iran, and Russia, and now they're all one thing. So, <laughs> so it's, that's a good way. To, that's a good way to kick it off. Um, actually, so we got we got a lot to talk about. But I want our audience to get to know you as well, sure. right? The way I've gotten to know you over the years. So beyond beyond just, you know, Elon's work, and I should say he's the senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council, a very good think tank. We're going to put their link to their website and actually their social media channels on our description so you can follow them. They do really good work on a lot of these big issues. But tell us your story. Tell, tell us how you got into this whole world. I know I've heard in many of the briefings you say you're a recovering lawyer. I, I am a recovering lawyer, So yeah. you, you obviously went to law school. Uh, you maybe practiced law, but how did you get right. into this? So uh, it's sort of interesting story. So so uh, the foundational thing was that I was horribly misadvised when I was an undergraduate. So I, I had a, you know, I was- uh, As we all are. Yeah, right. Exactly. Are. I went to, to college up in New England and my professor, I was an IR major. My professor said, hey, listen, uh, what do you think about doing next? And I said, oh, I have no idea. I'm sort of, you know, I'm looking for guidance. And he said, well, you could get a PhD and teach or you can get a JD and do everything else. And hmm. I thought, huh, I'm not a dummy. So, <laughs> so I'm going to go get a law degree. Yeah. And within a week of being in law school, I'm like, wow, this is not great. So you, so you knew it like at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's because- what, 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 what made you think that? What made you- Contracts, oh. torts, oh. right? <laughs> Property, all, you know, all the, all the subjects that are, that are not, not great. Um, hmm. And so I, I was, I sort of, you know, marinated in international affairs and in, in security issues. And then I went to law school and, you know, at least in the first year, they don't really- talk about any of that. Yeah, so, yeah. so I did a- It's all the minutia, right? Of, of no, legal. exactly, yeah. exactly. So I, I did a joint uh, JDMA. Okay. So I sort of leaned into um, my master's, okay. you know, uh, and- 
What school? What, what uh, so I, I uh, undergraduate, I went to Brandeis. Yeah. Uh, graduate, I went to American University. Okay. So I got a uh, school of international service. I have a master's from there. Yeah. Uh, That's the MA. MA. And then the Washington College of Law is the, okay. is the JD. So um, so I did uh, both um, both degrees in three years, which was- Wow. Yeah, you didn't which, sleep. Which is not great. Yeah. Uh, my- uh, then girlfriend, now wife. Okay. Uh, it was not a happy time. Okay. <laughs> she call a sweetheart then. Yeah, yeah, exactly, nice. exactly. Well, she could put up with that. No, she's listen, like, she's a keeper. Listen, as as my mother in law said to me um, uh, at the time, and she said, "Oh, well, you know, we're we got married after uh, I graduated." So she said, um, "Oh, well, you guys will get to rediscover each other because you really haven't seen each other for three years. <laughs> you really so, don't know so each other, have, right? Exactly. So <laughs> that's cool, though. So you got out of uh, college. You got both right. an MA and a, and a JD." Uh, so where did you go? Well, so I went to work uh, professional in counterterrorism. I went to okay. work private sector. So you knew that, that you, you know, like, okay, I'm not going to be a practicing no, lawyer. Yeah. I'm going to go into the CT yeah. world. And that, this is what year? Because this is like with CT. So this was uh, 2000, 2001. Yeah, so, this is yeah, the, these yeah, are the years. Because yeah, yeah, CT years. is different now. So. No, totally, totally different. And so so I went, um, I was sort of shopping for options and I sort of knew that I wanted to do uh, international security, foreign affairs. I didn't want to do law. This was sort of not my, uh, not my wheelhouse. So... Um, so I went to work for a private consulting group. You know, we did a lot of stuff with, uh, the U at that time, what was INS, uh, the national security council. Uh, <coughs> there was no department of Homeland security yet. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. As I die. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep talking. Okay. Okay. So there was no department of Homeland security yet. Um, it, but we were doing a lot of work sort of for the, uh, and it was on, um, Islamic extremism. So yeah. this was before nine 11. This was when, but like right before, no, right, right. Exactly. Right before. Um, and, but, but it was still a very hard sell. And I, I remember this sort of very distinctly when I did my master's in, um, uh, in, uh, international security, um, uh, international service, what they call it, right? At, at American University. Um, I was I was a Middle East specialist when I was an undergraduate and I, I wanted to do that. And the only class I could take was Islamic Paradigms of Conflict Resolution. That was the only oh. thing they were offering before 9-11. And they, it, you know- Israeli peace. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and also, you know, why sort of, you know, why uh, peace processing negotiations, all that stuff, which is sort of woefully- like a conflict resolution course or something. Six months later, yeah. right? A year later, woefully <clears throat> inadequate mm -hmm. as a sort of, uh, as a framing mechanism. So- I, I knew that I wanted to do the security stuff. Um, I didn't really enjoy uh, doing hard counterterrorism in the sense that, mm. that I sort of, I've always been a Russia guy, right? My heritage is, uh, my parents are Soviet refuseniks, uh, sort of, I was born in Israel. Uh, we sort of, we have all the Middle Eastern connections. We have the Russian connections, I native Russian speaker. And so I, I felt like I was a little bit limited. So, mm. um, so when the opportunity to sort of to jump to a think tank uh, came, I sort of, I, I, I jumped at it. And uh, I started out at the American Foreign Policy Council. Yeah. I, I, I'm a lifer. I've been there for 21 years. It's been a while. So yeah, well, a long time. And APC is a long history as well because it wasn't oh, originally uh, just a think tank. It was actually part of the Senate, right? It right, right. So, so AFPC, the American Foreign Policy Council, where I work, is uh, it, fa it was spun off as an independent organization in 82. But before that, it was an adjunct to the Senate Foreign Affairs yeah. Committee, Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and the the sort of the orienting idea was there were all these senators who weren't getting proper briefings mm. on things that they had to chair, uh, chair committee hearings on things like that. So it was essentially sort of a, an in-house think tank. And then, uh, my boss, uh, our president Herman Pershner sort of spun it off as a separate yeah. entity in 82. And then, you know, sort of, I came on to do the Russia portfolio and, uh, so you came on, it was already like at least 20 years independent. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. No, no, the, long history, but, but <coughs> I came on 
Um, and not to do Middle East. I came on to do uh, to do Russia stuff, and I sort of very quickly sort of did the bait and switch, and I said, hey, <laughs> hey you know, there's this region called the Middle East yeah. uh, that we should really focus on. Yeah. And uh, uh, Herman was a little bit skeptical, and, and he sort of said, hey, listen, do, do the Russia stuff. You could also focus on the Middle East, sort of in your free time. I said, fine. And then like nine months later, right? Nine months, right? And then he was like, "Okay, I, I think I, I understand where you're coming from. So go, go say no more, right? Exactly, say no more, exactly. So, so that's sort of uh, how. But did that give you like a hundred eighty flip? Like you now you're doing more Middle East and on the side Russia. Yeah. So listen, uh, the, the the problem with sort of with the with the Russia portfolio and, and anybody who is a sort of a criminologist is mm-hmm. sort of you know was a Soviet uh, Union scholar will tell you this that it sort of ebbs and flows. So mm-hmm. we Americans are fantastic at <clears throat> winning the war and losing the peace, meaning mm-hmm. we won the Cold War and then we promptly decided for whatever reason that like we have to forget everything about the former adversary. Yeah. A- and so uh, there were some pretty lean years for folks who worked on Russia, yeah. right? Yeah. To, to pivot to, you know, focus on, frankly, anything else, right? right? Focus on on the Middle East, focus on Afghanistan, whatever it is. And now, you know, what's old is new again, right? So <laughs> so now Russia is all of a sudden, you know, it turns out uh, Russia's a problem, yeah. you know, Russia. It never uh, went away. It never went away, right? Yeah. And which, which is, by the way, why I always uh, sort of joke tongue in cheek uh, that uh, the idea of the end of history is the most Washington thing ever. Yeah. Because the idea that we could be convinced that, you know, <clears throat> this long historical reach, these long imperial ambitions of this country that is still a superpower. I mean, still a sort of a regional power, still a formidable adversary. The fact that like, we can just forget about it. Everything's fine. Like, well, we're still the new world, really. At right. the end of the day, compared to the empires yeah. of the yeah. Far East, you know? So, no, yeah. exactly, exactly. No, I, I feel like it's such a conceit that we say, you know, this is the end of history that, that we've sort of reached the ultimate evolution uh, because what we're seeing now is the return of history, right? The yeah. return of imperial ambitions, the return of territorial conquest, yeah. things like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of really- it's kind of like a neo-colonization era, but no, it's not, exactly. you know, the armies that are colonizing, it's, uh, you know, uh, state-owned companies and illicit actors and all the right. you know, things we're going to get into. So let, let's let's jump ahead a little bit because when I got introduced to AFPC and then Elon, and we're going to get into this, I want to talk mostly about Russia, but we can't avoid talking about Iran. And as you said, they're all kind of one now. So it's you know, right. one big massive problem. But we got introduced because uh, you were looking, you're also an Iran guy, so you're a Middle East guy, so you're looking at Iran uh, global ambitions. You already published a bunch of books about that. Um, and I'm uh, looking, and I back then actually I was just beginning to look at Iran in Latin America. Uh, and so we got introduced by a mutual friend. I remember we had like a lunch and we talked about it and it just it was like, it was just like a, um, you know, you had me at hello, right? <laughs> right? So let's go down to Latin America together. But what I learned about APC and, uh, and what, what first really drew my uh, attention to you guys was you guys actually went to the countries that you researched, right? That wasn't a thing in Washington for many for many people. It was like, okay, I'm going to read the papers. I'm going to read, the, you know, the internet's out there. Um, but it's different to go. And I had that, as you know, I had that approach as well, but from the part of the world that we look at. So even before uh, these big geopolitical issues that are before today, great power competition was even a thing, I mean, you were going to China, you were going to Russia, right, exactly. obviously you were going, you can't go to Iran, that's a little different, right. you know, but you're going to the Middle East, you're going right. to, uh, uh, um, you, know, you know, all these countries where, where, where there are hotspots, right. and you're getting a temperature check and everywhere you're going. And, I, and my understanding is that that's what AFPC historically has always done. They used to lead Codels, I guess, to, to go down there. So tell us about a little bit of that work, and then I actually want a specific question about, tell us about one of your most interesting trips to Russia, before we dive into oh, that. Oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> well, okay. So, so uh, the sort of the broad context is, uh, I, it's exactly right. Um, so I, my sense is 
the philosophy that we have generally is that you can learn a lot about a country by reading, um, but you can't learn everything by sitting behind a desk and sort of figuring out, right, the nuances, uh, the sort of the personalities, the, the strategic dynamics that that are very clearly visible when you go into a country or you talk to people from that country. It's also like an energy. There's an energy in a country. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, and we tend to, and we don't even know it, we tend to impose our own frame, our own prior strategic priorities on any country that we look at. And, you know, the great example of this, I remember I, I was in Tunisia before um, the outbreak of the Arab Spring. So this was under Ben Ali. Um, this was right at the time when folks in Washington were getting really nervous about the potential for a proliferation cascade, the potential for the Iranian nuclear program to touch off nuclear acquisition by all these different countries in, uh, in the Gulf and in North Africa and sort of all over. And Iran was the alpha and the omega of our debate. So we thought everything related to Iran. And I remember asking this question of this official in, um, in Tunis uh, about sort of, you know, your nuclear program, the Iranian, you know, obviously you're very concerned about Iran. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, mm -hmm. we're not concerned about Iran at all. We are pursuing nuclear power because Muammar Gaddafi has us over a barrel mm -hmm. and he's extorting us for money. And we don't want to be caught in that trap. So we've sort of figured out that we want to uh, pursue nuclear power as uh, an alternative to Libyan oil, right? And blew my mind because it was a topic that quite literally I had never heard in Washington because we were so fixated on the Iranian nuclear program, we assumed that the Iranian nuclear program was the central <coughs> driver mm. for everything that was happening in the region. Um, so that sort of, you know, visitation where you go, where you stay long, where you talk to people is I think hugely important. And we've been doing that for years and years. Um, for a long time, we did it in Russia. Uh, we don't do it anymore, yeah. obviously. Um, for a long time, we did it in China. Uh, we've sort of ceased that, right? This is sort of not the time, yeah. I think not the time. It may, it may come back later. We'll, we'll see. Um, but a lot of the stuff that I do is the stuff that you do, which is, you know, sort of research fact finding missions, uh, you know. Uh, sort of very nimble, either myself or me and a couple of uh, of my coworkers. We sort of we go and we look at a discrete issue. You know, I've led counterterrorism delegations to Morocco. I've, I've led uh, you know uh, foreign policy delegations to Turkey and Israel and things like that. So, um, but anyway, uh, the uh, the most uh, what was the question? You most wanted? interesting uh, yeah. uh, one of the most interesting visits that you've had to. Well, first of all, when did you stop going to Russia? Because it, it, I. I actually haven't heard of you guys going to Russia in a, long, a while. No, no, actually. no, yeah, so. we haven't. And actually, so the most interesting was, so you have to understand the background, right? So the background is my parents are Soviet refuseniks. I'm too old to be a Jackson Vanek baby, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still considered myself a Jackson Vanek baby. And for those that don't know, um, the Senator Scoop Jackson uh, back in the 1970s authored legislation that conditioned U.S. recognition of uh, the Soviet Union on uh, or uh, U.S. preferential trade relations with the Soviet Union on uh, liberalization of immigration so that uh, uh, Soviet Jews who were then prevented from leaving could leave, right? right? So my parents actually left before that okay. big wave mm -hmm. that was spurred by Jackson Vanek, but as they say, close enough for government work. It was just, okay. a, just a couple <laughs> yeah. years. So yeah. I sort of still self-identify as a Jackson Vanek baby. And, you know, I was brought up on this idea of, you know, my parents explained to me very well what the, what the repressive Soviet system was like what it was like uh, for them to grow up. Did you, the, you didn't live in Russia though? No, right? no, no, yeah. I, did, I didn't. I was born in Israel. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they sort of, they uh, separately moved to Israel, mm -hmm. uh, met, married, I was born there. Um, and uh, so, but going back for me has always been this sort of this really 
emotionally complicated thing because mm. it's, you know, sort of, it's where my parents grew up, but it's also where my parents were repressed. Mm. It's where my parents grew up, but it's where my grandfather served 15 years yeah. uh, in the gulag, right? Mm. So it, it's it's a it's a very- It's kind of a mixed emotion. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so the last time we were there was actually, uh, I was part of a delegation um, uh, that was there uh, in December uh, of, I think it was December of 2013. Um, uh, or 2012, uh, somewhere around there, a decade ago, roughly. And everybody that I was, it was very clear, right? All of a sudden, very clear that I just wasn't, it wasn't, uh, looked upon favorably that I was there. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, data stopped coming in on my phone. All of a sudden, everybody that I was supposed to have meetings with got the diplomatic (laughs) flu. Right. Right. And, And so, and and I was stuck there because my flight out was not until like four or five days later. And it's fine. I had, I had like meetings, I had stuff yeah, to yeah. do, but I just remember, remember that sort of that feeling of claustrophobia, like where you're uh-huh. locked in with a regime that knows you're there, doesn't want you there. And it's going to make your life as miserable. It's almost like a gen- genetic alarm yeah, yeah, off yeah, in yeah, your yeah, body. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, you know, so I, I think I, I know what's going on here. I remember. So I was there actually over my birthday. Um, and I remember flying back. And as soon as I landed, I called my folks and I said, listen, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank okay. you because the most valuable <clears throat> present you ever got me was this little dark blue book that let me go to this place, but also let me leave, leave this place, it, yeah. right? Because I, I can only imagine what it felt like for them for years and years and years trying to get out and not being able to get out to sort of, you know, to effectively feel like an enemy of the no, state. No, and that's a thing. That's a thing. What you just said right there is very powerful because, you know, I, 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 I haven't never been to Russia. Um, but that story of, of, of a totalitarian state eliminating uh, the ability to freedom of movement and travel, it's, it's a story worldwide. But actually, I, I was recently in um, Estonia. Uh, and so when I was at a conference, and right when we were there, this is uh, in September, like late September, uh, is when uh, Vladimir Putin did the partial mobilization, right? So he started being conscription, which, you know, is going back to those times where you can't let the Russians leave right. uh, their own territory. And immediately, uh, most of the Baltic countries, including Estonia, closed their borders, right? I think almost all EU countries minus Finland and Turkey uh, closed their borders. Uh, And so uh, there was a mad uh, rush from St. Petersburg pretty much to the Finnish border, right? So I actually went to go, you know, border wars. So I went to go check it out. And you know me, I like to get up close. So I went to uh, the Finnish-Russian border. Um, And actually, there was an outlet mall (laughs) on the other side, on the Finnish side, which I realized that's pretty much a... Uh, an attraction for for the Russian oligarchs to go shopping and things like that. But what I really quickly realized was how much that means to be able to leave your country because it's, you know, it's a strip of land, right? It's at the end of the day, but there's border controls. But the ability to leave for some people means everything because you, you know, Russia's going to, in a war, Russia's about to escalate a, the war. They're about to draft you into the war, regardless of what you think right. about it. And there's people like figuring out how do I get out of this situation? Absolutely. Right? So I think that was very powerful what you said. And, and, and that allows us to not to jump into, uh, which is the Ukraine war, right? And obviously you've covered this a lot, both in your work and I think, but it's not just in 2020, you guys have been covering Ukraine for a long time, even before the, the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. So let's, let's start with this. Let's start a little bit with how would you characterize Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Because I think, you know, there's a very, you know, simple way to describe it, right? Which is just basically the annexation of the territory that's basically expanding what they did in Crimea to the entire country. Right. But there's a lot of geopolitical nuances to what's going Absolutely. on in, in, in Ukraine. And I feel like most Americans don't 
uh, understand it because they think it's really just a far off territory by a you know crazy dictator that wants to basically take their territory, which is bad. But what does it have to do with us? Because we are here on this other side of the world and we got our own problems with our border, also with uh, the economy and things like that. But really, it's not uh, just about the Ukrainians because this is a, an alliance that's operating here. Uh, this is a, 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 a country that represents or a symbol that represents a, a system, an order, a, a basically a way of life that the world is trying to maintain and preserve, uh, more difficult through time. And really, this is kind of like the beginning of what could end up becoming World War III because it seems like, you know, Taiwan's at the chopping block and not too long. In the part of the world that I look right. at, you got Colombia and you got Guyana and Venezuela's neighbors. So explain to this a little bit on the big picture. Like what, what does the Ukraine war mean for the international community and actually for Americans uh, here? Right. So th there's a lot there. So let me see if I can break it up into segments. So first of all, it's necessary to understand what Ukraine means for Russia, right? Why, do, why does Vladimir Putin covet it so much? Because I, I think a lot of Americans, when they look at it, they, they sort of, they, they don't get it. What, what is it? I mean, Ukraine's a large piece of land, right? But it's not, what is the strategic significance? Um, and you have to sort of, all of uh, this uh, sort of this yearning for Ukraine is all wrapped up in this neo-imperial idea that Vladimir Putin has. Because the- Well, br break that down a little bit because- Sure. You're not talking just the Soviet Union. You're, you're no, talking no, 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 about no, no, the right, Russian right. Empire. Right, right, right. Like no, no, I, and, and I, th I think that's a, that's a really important, it's a distinction with a difference because we, as I said, we, we've sort of, we've gotten a bit dumb on Russia in general, right? The, the way I like to look at it is um, we don't have a uh, foundational document to understand what Russia's all about, right? So, and by the way, we had one during the Cold War, right? In 1946, George Kennan, who was then a diplomat yeah, at the, uh, uh, right, he wrote the long telegram, a diplomat uh, in Moscow, became the ambassador, was sent back later, became the ambassador, but sitting in Moscow, he wrote this, uh, what was known, became known as the long telegram, this sort of this long, long essay on Here's what I think the sources of Soviet conduct are. Here's what I think they value. Here's what I think uh, they're trying to get at. Um, and, and here's how they see competition uh, with the West. And the reason that's significant is because having that understanding let us build strategies to respond, right? And we saw Republicans and Democrats over decades build strategies like containment, like rollback, right? The whole, the whole idea of uh, uh, sort of competing effectively with the Soviet Union started with understanding what the Soviet Union wanted. And we don't have anything like that right now. There is no document on the sources of Russian conduct, right? Which is why you get these uh, statements, which are, I think, very well-intentioned, but they're false. When you have high-ranking current and former officials talking about, well, Vladimir Putin's a KGB thug, he's trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Well, not quite, right? Mm. Um, a lot of what he's talking about is actually not the Soviet model. It's a Russian imperial model. So the if, Kiev on Rus, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So if you if you go if you if you can read or get Google Translate and sort of read it in the English, if you can read it in Russian, um, you should go back and, and read his speech on February twenty first before the invasion and his speech on February twenty fourth right after the invasion. This was basically like the 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 show your work portion mm. of the evening, right? So he gave a speech saying, "Here's what I'm going to do," and then he did it, and then he here's why I did. It. You know, mm. he sort of gave it gave a talk, but in that speech, he actually spends a lot of time. Uh, criticizing, obliquely criticizing the Soviet Union. And the reason he did this was because he said, look, uh, a lot of the problems that we have today, the problems of Russians and Ukrainians being a separate people, that's actually a Soviet construct. Because remember, when the Soviet Union expanded, it expanded rapidly and it expanded and it had to come up with a framework for managing different ethnicities. 
And so his criticism is the Soviet Union was too liberal. It gave these guys too much autonomy. And now Ukrainian boys and girls think they're real boys and girls. And they're actually not. They're actually Russians. And we need to we need to convince them of the error of their ways, right? So it's a little crazy to think that, you know, uh, from Vladimir Putin's perspective, the USSR was too liberal, yeah. right? But but that's exactly what it is. He doesn't see himself as a commissar, as a sort of a manager. He sees himself as a czar. Mm-hmm. And in Russian history, there has never been a Russian empire that didn't include Kievan Rus, what was at one time the largest uh, unitary nation state in Europe, um, uh, as part of the Russian Empire, right? Russian em- imperialism cannot exist without Ukraine, which is why the Kremlin cares so much about Ukraine. Well, wasn't it born partially in yeah. Odessa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, there were, right? So the Russian Empire is not one thing. Yeah, yeah. It's several things. But th- there are more than one iteration of the Russian Empire that had its origin point in Kiev and Rus, yeah. right? And, and it had its and capital Vladimir, in Vladimir the Great, right? right. It was... was was from uh, what is now Ukraine. Well, a, a lot of leaders yeah. were sort of from Ukraine. But the long before Moscow was the capital of the Russian Empire, long before St. Petersburg, before that was the capital of the Russian Empire, Kiev was yeah. the capital of the Russian yeah. Empire. So, and, and, and I think that's the point that gets lost. And I think you've explained it brilliantly, which is basically Vladimir Putin is now not, he's opening Pandora's box. And it's not just about... Um, you know, what was the Cold War? You know, did some, you know, tin pot dictator that wants to basically control for land, control more land for kleptocratic reasons. He's basically taking revisionist history on steroids and, and, and putting muscle behind it, putting bombs and bullets right. and things behind it, which now opens Pandora's box for every, what, like authoritarian in the world that right. thinks the history wronged them because of the way uh, the world has evolved over time to go back. Uh, thousands right. of years uh, uh, to basically go back centuries and to say we need to recon- re- reconstruct what was uh, the former empires. And obviously China's paying a lot of attention to this. Right. Uh, Iran's paying a lot of attention Absolutely. to this. And even from the part of the work, work uh, that I do, uh, Maduro, Venezuela's paying a lot of attention. They had an empire at one time, which is called the Greater Colombia. And so they're trying to recon- reconstruct that. Now let's take this to uh, we, now, the geopolitical significance, you explained brilliantly, but let's take this to understand now why the United States needs to get more involved in this, because it's not also not just about, you know, stopping right. uh, a madman from recreating an empire, but it also has direct effects uh, on sure. the United States. Sure. No, well, and, and I, I think that's exactly the right way to think about it, because there is this <clears throat> temptation, right? So all politics is local. And so we just, you know, went through the midterm elections and sort of, you know, the American um, political system is uh, heated, superheated, right? You could say, but there is- Say it mildly. Mildly, <laughs> right. There, there is this, uh, this skepticism that, that at least in certain corners about, you know, why is it necessary? Why does it scare? If it's far off place, it doesn't matter. But what you have to understand is um, the, there's drivers that are driving the Russians to try to expand uh, sort of- and encroach upon the West, right? So fundamentally, Vladimir Putin, he doesn't think that the post-World War II liberal order, right, in which uh, liberal, uh, what we consider liberal institutions, right, the United Nations and NATO and you know, what, what have you, that their expansion is a good thing for Russia. Russia doesn't see itself as part of Europe. It doesn't see itself as part of, of Asia. It sees itself as a distinct civilizational identity, right? This is where the idea of Eurasianism Eurasia. c- comes from. And for Eurasians... The current balance of power globally does not benefit Moscow, mm. right? So the way I like to think about it is Russia is like a, a mime, you know, a, a sort of mm. a, a, an actor who pantomimes, who's always trying to push on the edges of the box, right? Trying to push the edges of the box outward. 
And so that's what that's the larger significance of Ukraine. Because if Vladimir Putin is allowed to salami slice his way to get more and more pieces of territory without a resolute Western response, his appetite will grow. And you sort of, uh, and everybody likes to think about Ukraine. Well, not just his appetite. No, no, not yeah. just, no, no. His and, friends and, too. And everybody who's watching. But everybody likes to think about the current war in the context of, you know, well, this has just started out of nowhere. Actually, this has been going on in modified form for uh, a decade and a half, right? You have uh, encroachment on Georgia. You have encroachment on Ukraine the first time, um, right? Uh, the Georgian War of, of 2008, uh, the, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, right? So this is a, this is a sort of a, a tried and true pattern of behavior, right? He carves off a little chunk, he, he eats it, he digests it, he comes back for seconds or thirds or whatever it is. What's different this time is that he was all in. He decided, you know, rather than taking a part of Ukrainian territory and then sort of waiting and then taking more, he decided, this is my time. This is my plan. And what, what do you think made him make that calculation uh, in terms of the time horizon? Like, why did why is now the time? I think he felt a couple of things, right? So, so first of all, the, you know, he's not the only one that sort of remarked on this inward turn that the United States has, right? The U.S. has historically has been this guarantor for, of security in Europe. And as President Trump would talk about, it became a sort of a very unequal bargain where the Europeans yeah. didn't actually invest as much as they should um, in their own defense. Um, and well, a lot of them are making deals with Russia. I'm sorry. A lot of them were making no, deals no, no, with Russia. No, correct. Yeah. And and so uh, and and that's by the way that one of the most interesting things to me is that that's really changing now, where yeah. all of a sudden you're seeing this this strategic clarity from Europe saying, "Listen, Russia is sort of the bear at the door, and we have to be very careful. We we can't you know create side deals with them any longer. We'll see how long that lasts, right? Because winter's coming. It's going to be <laughs> cold. It's you know the, the Russians have energy, but for right now the strategic clarity holds. But not just in Europe. But also in places like Africa and the Middle East, there's been a perception for a long time across multiple administrations that the U.S. is in retreat. America's not so interested anymore in all this stuff, in all these foreign entanglements. And so there's this empty political space that if you're an ambitious autocrat, you can fill, right? Mm -hmm. And you see this, by the way, in the Middle East, in the context of the way the Iranians are behaving, in the Asia Pacific, in the context of the way the Chinese are behaving, and in uh, you know, Latin America, yeah. Latin America, and in Eastern Europe, and in the Balkans, and other places where sort of Russia was sort of stretching its its wings. Okay, so now that that begs us to get the next question, which is essentially, did uh, Vladimir Putin bite off more than he can chew? Because he made the, he made the time horizon. And actually, I, let me go back a little bit because actually, you wrote a book that I thought you were going to talk about, but I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and go mention ahead. it because um, my thinking, uh, one of the factors that might have nudged Vladimir Putin to shorten the time horizon of doing such an aggressive action, such as the invasion, is perhaps the internal situation in Russia, right? You need to, uh, Ilan wrote a book uh, called Implosion, which is one of the, really the best books, modern books on, on Russia that you can read because it gets into something that a lot of people don't want to get into because it may sound boring thing, but it's really important when you understand civilizations and society, which is demographics, right? It talks about the changing in demographics and, and pretty much his stronghold on the Russian people wasn't as strong as he tried to make it out to be politically, right. socially, culturally, economically. And so my thinking was that maybe he thinks he might lose power at some point because right. things are kind of, the house of cards is starting to be very shaky and he has to take some, like, you know, the, the goal was always to annex Ukraine, or not Ukraine, the goal was to capture Ukraine. That was absolutely from the beginning he, when he became, when he, when Vladimir Putin was uh, in, 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 um, became president right. at the turn of the century. It, this was always the goal. But I think 
was the internal factor a reason that said, you know, I oh, need to move fast? Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. And, 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 this and, and talk about your book a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. So, so it's called Implosion, the mm -hmm. End of Russia and What It Means for America. Uh, I think it came out in like 2013, 2014. Yeah, so I was going to say and the it, year and I can't it, remember. It, so it, it was a little was, while ago. There's, there's a, a demerit to being so far ahead of the curve that people <laughs> look at the book. They're like, well, that's, you're crazy. But like, you read it today, it makes a lot more right, sense. It makes yeah. a lot more sense, right? So, so what I talked about in the book was the question of demographics in Russia, right? Demographics, the pace of a nation's population, it determines everything. Um, Russia is a colossus. Russia is a country that spans nine separate time zones, yeah. but Russia's running out of people. Yeah. Well, the so, world is having deep population no, no. problem, but Russia's a little bit way, way past it. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So um, the, the magic number is 2.1. 2.1 is called uh, replenishment, right? So every woman during her fertile lifespan should have a child to replace herself, a child to replace her husband, and 0.1 for accidents and earthquakes and, you know, whatever. And Russia, for a long time, since the 1960s, has been below replenishment, right? And by the way, Russia's not the only one, right? Europe is below yeah, replenishment. Yeah, the world's and, having right? a yeah. um, But the problem with that is that in the early decades, it ran against the Soviet idea of, you know, the Soviet empire is expanding, it's enduring, it's sort of, it's going from strength to strength. In fact, population-wise, it was constricting. In the Russian situation, the contemporary Russian situation, it's even more dire because you get a, in the Soviet Union, you had populations that were locked in place. You had people that lived in places where, frankly, they shouldn't have lived, right? Uh, in uh, uh, Siberia and the Russian Far East. You know, there, there's, uh, it, it, it's not really conducive yeah. to human settlement, right? Um, and so what you saw with the collapse of the Soviet Union was out-migration. People in the Russian Far East migrated to what's called European Russia. People in European Russia migrated out of Russia altogether. And so you have this emptying of Russia that's taking place. So Russian demographics are significantly below replenishment. They're about 1.7, 1.8. Um, and so Russia as a whole is constricting. Mm. Um, and Vladimir Putin has tried for the last 10 years, all these domestic programs to try to speed up the domestic birth rate. Um, none of it's worked, right? It's been very stubborn. Um, and so if you can't increase your population by, you know, improving healthcare or by, you know, giving payoffs to mothers to have more children, how do you increase your population? Conquest, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have this imperial ideology and the demographic pressures of needing to widen the pie actually feed really nicely yeah. into that, th that message. Why? Because uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't want everything, right? Uh, despite how much the Central Asian states like to talk about it, uh, the Russians are not across the, you know, sort of uh, over the horizon, yeah. right? They're not coming for them imminently. Mm -hmm. the Rus but the Russians are coming for the Slavs, right? Mm -hmm. The Slavic peoples. Where are the Slavic people located? In Ukraine, mm -hmm. in Belarus, in parts of Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so the idea of a greater Slavic state, a way to sort of to rebuild the glory of the Russian empire has a lot to do with precisely the targets that Vladimir Putin and his advisors are targeting in terms of territorial acquisition. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That make, I mean, you, you can't, you know, have more uh, fertility rates and birth rates go up than you just basically capture a whole new ethnicity and say they're Russians and now, you know, all of a sudden right. population problem goes above that 2.1 magic number. So what, 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 what would you think um, are, are the follow-on uh, maneuvers that can happen in the Ukraine war because we're kind of at a stalemate to some level, uh, right? The, you know, it's clearly the Russians didn't, we weren't, well, Vladimir Putin was able to uh, um, get as much uh, battlefield victories as he probably was anticipating when he did the initial invasion. The Ukrainians put up quite a resistance, uh, both militarily, I think also in the information space and, and just along the lines, but you know, also they're, they're limited at how much they can actually defend, you know, we're, supplies are running out, winter's coming. We should expect for the Ukraine war because I think Americans' appetite to, 
do anything about the war. It wanes. You know, we have a short time Absolutely. span and it's just waning Absolutely. every day, every, every week, every month. So it, it's hard to tell. And it's hard to tell for a couple of reasons, right? Because if the Russians had succeeded in their game, right? So remember Vladimir Putin's initial play was to say, we need to uh, effectively do regime change in Kiev and it's going to take like two, three days. If that had actually happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? It would be a done deal. Uh, Ukraine would be under Russian suzerainty or something. So um, that didn't happen. The Russian military started the war as the second strongest military in Europe. And right now it's the second strongest but, military in Ukraine. But by the so, way, why, why didn't they use their top military assets at the beginning of the war? Why did they bring the, I don't call it the JV scope. Why didn't they bring, why didn't they bring the same force they use in Syria? So it, it's a good question. I think, you know, there's such a thing as, as sort of uh, being misadvised, right? So nobody ever lengthened their lifespan by telling Vladimir Putin what he didn't want to hear, right? Okay. So there was no, my sense is there, there's, there's all autocrats operate within a, a bubble of sorts. And I think Vladimir Putin uh, sort of also operates in a bubble. If you look numerically, at the uh, sort of just the numbers that the Russians were planning to throw against Ukrainian population centers, the idea that less than 200,000 troops can take and hold a city of 3 million in Kiev uh, is, is, is insane. Uh, and, and, you know, and not, not only that, but right, Odessa and sort of other places, um, he just didn't have sufficient manpower because his advisor had told him for so long, Oh look, the Russians, the Ukrainians are one people. We're going to be greeted like uh, like liberators. You know, the, yeah. there'll be uh, there won't be any resistance. You don't need to marshal. Uh, you know, this can effectively be done on the cheap. Okay. So my and, and my sense so is so you told them this is going to be fast, it's going to be cheap, right. it's going to be relatively easy. Right. And my sense is that by the time they figured out that they were really in it, that the mm. Ukrainians had sort of you know the, put up stiff resistance, uh, this was this became a resource problem. This yeah. became a you know, it became a Western response problem. How do you counter? Because it's not just, you're not just fighting Ukraine, you're fighting. So they miscalculated. You know, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, pretty colossally. Um, and in, I mean, look, right, objectively on paper, if you look at uh, Vladimir Putin's track record over the course of, he, he's been in office since the last days of uh, 1999, yeah. right? Um, in the last nine months, he has set back his country three decades in terms of economic development. He has gotten Russia excluded from all major multilateral fora. He has created a strengthened sense of Ukrainian national identity, um, which you could sort of, you know, a few years ago, you could sort of, you know, talk about- Yeah, the Russian separatism. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, and I mean, it's it's been a, is a strategic catastrophe well, but for let Russia. Me, let me pause there because I agree, but partially. So let, 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 me, let me explain. I agree. So Russia obviously is in a much worse shape today than they were uh, before they invaded. Um, but I'm not sure that's all not calculated correctly. Um, I think the premise to, to, to that perspective is that Russia, um, but also with its friends in, in the Far East, China, in the Middle East, Iran, in Latin America, Venezuela, have a premise that they want to continue to be part of the international order. Like they want to continue to be participating in the multilateral space and in the world of uh, um, international economics. Or maybe they think that this is the time to flip it on its head, right? After COVID and everything that's going on in the world, the polarization, the disinformation, which we got, we got to talk about in a second. And what I've noticed is an interesting statistic that I think it's played off a lot, and at least not, I haven't heard much of it in the international, but I think talked about some, which is uh, the food insecurity crisis that this has actually sparked, right? Because, you know, between Russia and Ukraine combined, they produce about 12% of the calories consumed worldwide because of wheat and fertilizers, right? Which so like Africa eats uh, based on this part of the world. Uh, uh, Latin America, many parts eat the best part of the world. 
So what the invasion actually allowed them to do was to create a need, a market need in food and agriculture, further fertilizers and wheat uh, that can turn into economic coercion uh, by the, the Kremlin and uh, Beijing because they backing them all this to start to look at the global south as a way to flip them on the international payment systems, you know? And so uh, one of the one of the biggest disinformation campaigns that I've seen from Russia is the hit on US sanctions, right? To say that sanctions are crimes against humanity, that they're big bullies from the West and the, in the US. And what I've noticed is, is the statistic very, very small was is uh, the SPFS, the Russian payment system, I've noticed that, uh, now this is according to the Russian foreign ministry, so I'm taking their stats, right? what it's worth, but uh, uh, that they uh, have grown in the amount of both countries and banks that are now participating in that system, mostly coming from, initially it was Eurasia for the most part, and Belarus and stuff like that. Now it's coming from Latin America, it's coming from Africa, it's coming from parts of Southeast Asia, who are signing on to the system out of fear that at one point they could be sanctioned next, or economic coercion because they need the damn fertilizers from from Russia. So talk about that component, because that seems like that might have been a strategic calculation that plays to their benefit. Yeah, maybe, right? Because because at least historically, the Russians have been really good at being both arsonist and firefighter, right? Essentially (laughs) creating a problem and then presenting themselves as a solution to that problem. I think if there was part of that in Mm -hmm. this calculation, I think they played the angles wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Because listen, nothing succeeds like success. And no matter how much spin the Kremlin puts on it, what you're seeing in Ukraine right now is not a Russian success, right? Uh, To the point where, you know, you're seeing at least rudimentary cracks in the partnership between Moscow and Beijing because the Chinese are sort of, because the Chinese have their own fish to fry and they're they're worried about Taiwan and sort of what does this do? You know, it doesn't serve the long-term Chinese strategic interest that the West gets all exercised over Russian overreach in Ukraine and marshals a plan that could then be modeled later to be a response something Taiwan, yeah. on Taiwan, right? So my point is that Vladimir Putin has not done himself any favors, mm-hmm. um, but there is opportunity within adversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the food situation, um, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in, in Africa and, and the sort of the messaging is exactly that, which is the conflict is distant, but we're really worried about, you know, all politics is local. We're really worried about how do we feed our families? Yeah. You know, we don't, uh, for whatever reason, you know, Africa doesn't have a food bank really. And and so, you know, they're very vulnerable. They feel vulnerable. And so they put their morality to one side and they say, listen, we have to pressure to sort of create as much uh, pressure as possible to end the conflict as soon as possible because we want business to return as usual. Whether that actually sort of fundamentally reorients the global system, I think that, that may be, um, you know, may, if the Russians thought about it, I think I think that was sort of, you know, a bridge too far. But my sense is there are places where at least incrementally, yeah, you're seeing the Russians make gains, even though they're losing strategically. Yeah, they're, 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 they're the losing uh, in the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, uh, their military is getting depleted. Uh, they're, um, the Russian people are rapidly turning against, and there are already a tendency of that, that they're rapidly turning against uh, the Federation or, or, or Vladimir Putin himself. But you said there might be opportunities and they might be capitalizing opportunities. They're going to take victories where they can get them at, at this point. But uh, let's then transition to what I mentioned there was the disinformation aspect of sure. it, because this is the part that I've had a lot of conversations with, because, you know, I spent a lot of time in the South of the world, you know, both in South America, Latin America, but also in, in Africa and other places. And what I noticed when and I came back and actually when Russia invaded Ukraine, I think I was in Latin America. And so the narrative was very different when I heard about the news than, you know, probably what you hear in Washington. But when I came back to Washington, everyone was like, oh, look at this and how they, and I was like, you know, but my impression that I got, the, the, the first uh, kind of messaging that I saw about this uh, was how they were spinning uh, this uh, in Spanish in this case, but the, how are they spinning this uh, about kind of their, their uh, 
fighting for their existence in some sense, right? And then what it really kind of stuck out of my mind at that point was the, kind of how much the Russians had advanced and then be able to do global messaging, right, in multiple languages. Uh, and what I came to find out was, you know, here in Washington, like, oh, we were building this consensus around Vladimir Putin in Russia. And I was like, I don't think that's a global consensus. I said, certainly a Western consensus. I think, as you mentioned, Europe's conscience has gotten up and they're not willing to pay uh, their, their, their dues and their fees to NATO and, and whatever kind of security architecture that they're going to have to defend themselves. I think even the United States has risen up again to really understand that the world does matter, at least in the policy sphere. But not everybody in the world has, has had that make same calculation because, as you mentioned, all politics are local. And some countries are just looking at their, their own bottom line interests, right? I think Brazil comes to mind with this because President Bolsonaro in Brazil is no friend of Russia, no friend of China. But at the end of the day, when it came to the votes in the UN and other international organizations like the OAS, he had to basically abstain or basically defend Russia because they're economically dependent on them. So... Part of that is the consequence of disinformation, uh, among, other act, among other things within strategic influence. But it really takes a play how much Russia's grown in that space uh, about being able to use strategic messaging, strategic influence, yeah, uh, public. Uh, so talk to us about that. I know you spent a lot of time on no, this I, I, I issue. Do. Yeah. I do. Uh, this is, uh, unfortunately, this is sort of the burr in my saddle for, <laughs> for a number of years now. No, and, and so the best way to sort of to explain what the Russians are doing, and and. I say this advisedly because I, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to make out the Russians to be 10 feet tall in terms mm -hmm. of disinformation. Um, because if you look back, I mean, look, the Russian disinformation is the follow-on to Soviet disinformation, right? The Soviets started active measures yeah, and yeah. reflexive control and sort of all that stuff uh, as early as, well, I mean, they started it in the 20s and 30s, but they really sort of, you know, uh, graduated to a diploma program in, yeah, in yeah. the 1950s. I remember I read that book. Was it the KGB and Disinformation? Uh, Baslav, the, the, yeah, yeah, the check yeah. that the yeah, fact yeah. That, that was a good book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and, and uh, so what the Russians are doing now, the, the sort of, the methods are not new, but the modalities are new because yeah. the media environment's different. Yeah, the there's, digital. The digital, there's different platforms. You can, you know, the cost of entry uh it's much higher if you're just dealing with newspapers and radio stations and television. Now you have, you know, anybody can set up a website. You can, you know, of dubious provenance. You can sort of do, you can, uh, it's even cheaper to create, you know, bot accounts and bot networks mm. and sort of things like that. So my sense is that that this is a media environment that favors the insurgent. And, yeah. uh, it's more asymmetric. Yeah, the absolutely. Definition, yeah. And the Russians are acting like an insurgent mm -hmm. in the context of disinformation. Now, the what I think is, is necessary to understand uh, is like we're sometimes uh, I think surprised. I mean, to the point where Russian sort of you know interference and meddling uh, was uh, the topic of uh, was it the the last two seasons of of Homeland, right? I mean, it, it sort of captured the imagination so I never, much. I never watched it. Nah, it's okay. Is, is it's, that, it's okay. Nah, was, it's, was it Homeland or Americans? Uh, Americans. Okay, uh, but, but Americans is, is the sort of the Cold War, you okay. know, sleeper agent. Okay. I, I, Americans is, you know. A little dated. <laughs> well, yeah, it's dated, but, 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 you know, you can sort of nostalgia and whatever. Uh, Homeland is, is a little bit far afield, I think, but. Um, but I stopped your train of thought. Go, go no, ahead. No, no, I say, yeah, I'm sorry. I was, uh, no, no, but, but that's precisely it, right? Um, the, uh, the Russian meddling and simply sort of dis zero sum disturbing the political environment is, um, was so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we saw it in the context of 2016 to a lesser extent in the context of 2020, yeah, uh, the yeah, elections. Yeah, yeah. And so there is a, uh, a sense that, you know, the Russians are just, this is what they do. They just sort of meddle. And I think what's missing in that understanding is that we in the United States have a very bright line between war and peace, right? Mm. If we're not at war, we're at peace, we're at peace yeah. and we operate like we're at peace. But in Russia, 
uh, sort of in the way the Russians define their strategic objectives globally. It's always war. It's this continuum. Yeah. It's right? Lenin, right? That's, and, yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. And, and, and information warfare is an essential part of that continuum. Mm. So they are continuously on a rolling basis trying to shape the informational environment. So what's important, to, I, I guess, what, at least what I'm taking away from that is essentially that the reason they're good at it is because they've always been good at it. Practice makes perfect. Exactly. And and so not necessarily innovating in the space so much as they're just basically been consistent over time where you can make an argument that the United States has been less consistent over time, uh, especially on information uh, warfare. Um, but how, how are you seeing it impact? I could, I know I look at the part of the world that I look at and I can see how it's impacting there, but how, you look at other parts of the world. How's it impacting in other parts of the world? What do you think it's doing well? What do you think it's not doing so well? So and the disinformation. One, one, one of the most fascinating things is that, you know, uh, for people like me, I've worked on disinformation for years, but for years up until the Ukraine war started, disinformation was this sort of fringe topic. And we sort of, we talked about disinformation. We didn't really understand yeah. disinformation. We didn't really do disinformation. Now, all of a sudden it's front and center on the strategic objective uh, agenda of, of Europe, for example. So I was, I was in Europe last month mm -hmm. and there is a tremendous amount of activity now focusing on disinformation, focusing on Russian malign messaging, um, to the point where, you know, Russian outlets like Sputnik and RT have been banned from the Eurozone, mm. right? But, you know, listen, on the battlefield, the adversary also gets a vote. So what you see is that as the traditional avenues of Russian malign influence get closed off, you see more and more the sort of the Russians trying to do different things, right? Going around the periphery, going mm. to Latin America, going to Africa, going, for example, to the Nordic states, when there was still a an active debate in the Nordic states about joining NATO, whether they should or not, you saw a tremendous amount of Russian disinformation mm -hmm. oriented at depressing popular support for NATO membership for those countries, right? So- I think I, I saw a lot of that in Finland. Uh, yeah, no, no, that's right. They, that's right. I think they, they, I don't know if they were behind this, but there was a lot of disinformation about the prime minister that- That's right. And the, like getting drunk or whatever at the bars or whatever that, I can't remember right. the exact story, but essentially it were done mostly on Russian- uh, um, well, it wasn't actually Russian state owned media, but it was like Russian known influencer accounts. Right, yeah. right. Uh, was it Russian aligned? Yes, Russian aligned. Called, that's right. it. Yeah. Um, and no, and and, and uh, this sort of I think gets us to objectives, right? So uh, I'm I'm a firm believer in this in the concept that you know all politics is local. So it's necessary to understand what the Russians are trying to do because you hear a lot when people talk about. I mean, look, the the Russians trying to meddle in the U.S. elections, mm -hmm. not once but twice, three times, four times, right? Um, and so you get this sense, uh, the immediate conclusion that we jump to is, oh, they were picking winners and losers. They liked one candidate, they didn't like another. But that, that's not what that's they were doing. Yeah, yeah. That's not what they were doing. They're, all politics is local. And so the people that Russia is trying to message to, the Kremlin is trying to message to, are Russians. Mm -hmm. And what they're trying to say is, look, I know you have it bad. I know we're underperforming economically. I know my regime is repressive. But look over there. Yeah, they're worse. It's super chaotic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so- don't organize, don't mobilize, don't be activists, right? Because just be happy with what you have, right? So the goal here is chaos creation, right? The goal yeah. here is- Or perception. To, yeah, yeah, and to undermine trust in democratic institutions. Or to try to make a, a an argument that democracies don't work, they don't exactly. deliver, they don't have exactly. results, and it's all crazy, just as crazy. We're crazy, but they're crazier, that kind of thing. And I, I see that. That's a very big, I agree 100%. I never thought that Russia really cares. I mean, not to say they don't care, but they don't, not, they're not invested into putting all their money into like one, they're not a campaign donor. No, they're right, basically exactly. looking to basically try to be, put a perception out there 
where voters uh, in the United States or in any country that because they're meddling in a lot of parts of the world just become disillusioned with the whole thing and just like you know voting doesn't matter nothing matters the system doesn't matter uh, America sucks you know right. and 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 that then translates into Russia's better you know? right uh, or Russia's an alternative you know? right right and 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 that's where we sort of get into uh, a place where Russian disinformation is very much aligned with say Chinese disinformation yeah. right the Chinese to a much greater extent by the way than than the Russians are the Chinese are pushing an alternative model a model mm. of organization, ideological organization, right? That they're pushing and they're promoting along uh, what they call their belt and road, right? Through all these investments, right? It's very clear that we're in a systems clash. Mm. Um, the Russians are sort of free floating in this US-China competition, but they're there. And they benefit the more the US side is on the back foot, the more the US side is sort of, you know, has to uh, defend its principles, feels like it's under assault, right? Because fundamentally, Autocratic institutions don't just benefit Beijing. Autocratic institutions benefit Tehran, and they benefit Pyongyang, and they benefit uh, Moscow as well. Well, now that you mentioned Tehran, uh, I think one of the things that I guess has been in the news lately, and some of the things I think uh, it's, uh, it it wasn't surprising to me, I'm pretty sure it wasn't surprising to you, uh, was the delivery of drone systems from Iran to to Russia, right? Now, that did surprise, I guess, some, because they always felt like Russia was a superior military, and they provided a lot uh, to the Iranian uh, missile uh, defense programs, and so they figured, why why would they need the Iranians? But uh, well, one, we learned a lot about the Russian military and their ability to, as they say, you know, uh, uh, deliver those beans, bullets, and band-aids on the battlefield. But I think the other part of it is uh, Iran, um, their drone program, while it may not be the best in the world, it, it has been consistent at developing them. Uh, they, they've been putting uh, time and attention into that, and I've seen it because they've been doing it in Venezuela, right? So I think I put out a tweet the other day where I said, before they deliver drones to Russia, uh, Iran's been delivering drones to Venezuela for more than a decade now. But talk to us about that. How, what what does that uh, really mean? Because to some end, you know, okay, fine, they're delivering drones, but, you know, Ukraine's getting really good drones from Turkey, from right. from other places. And, and, and honestly, the Russian or the Iranian drones aren't really doing that much damage on the battlefield that I could tell. A lot of them are actually cra- um, uh, malfunctioning. Right. Um, but 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 what does that actually mean beyond this? So, so I think there's a couple of really important things here. So first of all, <clears throat> the fact that <clears throat> Sorry. The, the fact that the Russians are relying on Iran for the provision of drones really reflects a sea change in the Russian-Iranian relationship, right? So you got to go back, you know, two Like decades. the big brother, little brother. Yeah, 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 exactly. So so for, for years and years and decades and decades, the Russians have been the senior partner in yeah. the partnership, right? The Iranians have been the international pariah, especially since, uh, you know, over the last 20 years. Um, the Russians have been running interference for them mm. at multilateral forum, yeah, yeah. like the UN, and you know, diluting sanctions, things like that. And so what you always saw was you saw Iranian officials going to Moscow to sort of to beg for aid, to beg mm. for support. And now you're seeing the opposite. You're seeing Vladimir Putin go to Tehran and bend the knee. Mm. Because now all of a sudden- That trilateral summit? Yeah, Erdogan, yeah, yeah, Erdogan, yeah, yeah. So now all of a sudden- Yeah, they brought Erdogan and Putin together. They, yeah. they did, they yeah. did. I'm not sure that that sort of that last- The last, that yeah, last, the, the, but, the photo. Uh, <laughs> valiant effort, yeah. right? Um, no, but but I, I think it's sort of the, the photo op underscored an important point because now all of a sudden it's the Russians that are isolated. It's the Russians that are looking for strategic partners and they don't have as many as they thought they did. Mm. And so the Iranians now, you know, I mean- if you're an Iranian official, you sort of, you feel, you feel okay. You feel comfortable. You're in a sort of an advantageous strategic position. The second thing is that, first of all, it shows Russia's weakness in terms of military hardware. Mm. Because the Russians, what you've seen is in strategic terms, the material costs and the, the manpower costs of the Ukraine war are forcing the Russians to retract a lot of the stuff that they had put in motion in places like Africa. 
in places like the Middle East where they're repositioning personnel, they're recalling mercenaries, mm. they're doing all sorts of stuff because the Ukraine war has become this suck on resources. And so they're increasingly asking countries like Iran, we need help, right? We need assistance. Um, and and so, so my sense is if, that, if that's a leading indicator of where the Russian military is going, it's not going anywhere good, mm. right? The fact they have to rely on, on Iran. And the third thing is that uh, it also shows us, I think something very disturbing uh, in the context of Iranian military development. Because there's always been this sort of, uh, and there's still this sort of tension in Washington that sort of ebbs and flows depending on on administrations about whether Iran is an expansionist power or a defensive power, fundamentally, right? Um, and the pattern that you're seeing from Iranian military development and deployment is definitely the fact that they're, it sort of, it shows that they're an expansionist power. Yeah. Iran develops a sophisticated capability and it sells it or it deploys it, right? Um, it did so with uh, its missiles. Uh, it did so with its drones, which by the way, they didn't show up first in Russia. They showed up first in places like Syria or in places yeah. like Yemen. So when the Iranians develop a sophisticated capability, it's only a matter of time until it's- It's mostly for exporting it. Yeah, it's mostly yeah. for exporting it. And what does that tell you, right? We're, because all of this is happening against the backdrop of an administration that is, you know, frankly, still desires very much for the Iranians to come back to the negotiating table. The to, yeah, to negotiate a nuclear deal, a nuclear deal that is not a permanent break on Iran's it's, nuclear. It seems to me almost like the, the Iranians don't even care. The regime in Iran doesn't care much about the deal as much as the, the current administration, the no, administration no, no, no. does. I mean, it seems like they want to push the deal more no, than the Iranians the, do. The current, listen, uh, personnel is policy. And, and, you know, it bears noting that all of the principles involved in pushing for a revived JCPOA, a revived Iran nuclear deal, were the ones that were present at the creation yeah, the last yeah. <laughs> time, right? Um, and Tony Blinken, Wendy Sherman, Rob Malley, you know, all those guys. And and so uh, they wouldn't, you wouldn't expect them to come into office half a decade later and say, hey, listen, we were totally wrong. <laughs> we, made a mistake. we were wrong five years ago, <laughs> right? So there is this intellectual consistency, but what they're trying to sell is not a longer and stronger agreement like they were talking about. What they're trying to sell is re-entry into an agreement that's mostly expired. Yeah. It's like 60% expired already. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that it seems like a very flimsy intellectual case, right? If you're a casual observer, it's, it's because it is. It is, yeah. it's, it's, it's old wine in new bottles. It is, it is. No, you could tell. And it's almost like, it seems almost like desperation because, you know, and, and on the foreign policy front, there's been a lot of failures uh, with Afghanistan, you, you know, and so they're looking to see what they can recover, what they can rehash. Um, but, you know, kind of one of the things that it showed me, at least the, the, the delivery of the drone systems to Russia or to Ukraine, well, to Russia for Ukraine, is this alliance uh, that many people discounted for many years. They thought it might've been just periphery or it might've been just tangential transactional, but we're starting to see really a strategic alliance emerge. It's unconventional, it's unnatural, it's got weaknesses, uh, but it's only got weaknesses if you exploit those weaknesses. It's only got vulnerabilities if you do something about it. If you let it kind of just evolve and mature, it could turn into something even more dangerous. Uh, that's Russia, China, and Iran. I think those three countries have kind of figured out the, the only thing that they need to figure out for now, which is that they have the same common enemy. They have the same common adversary, the same obstacle that they need to be able to figure out how to work around uh, together. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to be permanent partners. That doesn't mean that they're going to end up being best friends when this all is and done. And probably over time, they'll probably fight each other because they're in their same vicinity in space. But the big but on that is that that'll probably happen when the United States isn't what the United States is today, which is where the United States is starting to go because of bad policy decisions made by uh, of folks in the positions of power. So my question on that really is to understand is, well, how far is this alliance maturing? Um, 
right now it seems like it's going a little bit faster, uh, and that might be because of the inaction of the current government, uh, the current administration, the Biden administration. Um, and let's say the two questions on this. One is how bad are we doing it really? Right. And, and bottom line, uh, and how bad is it going to get? Number two, uh, the good thing about the United States, at least for now, is that we're still a democratic country. Uh, you know, there is elections, there, there are credible right. elections and people, uh, can you know, be empowered today and not empowered tomorrow. Um, if we have a new administration, what should be the attitude on this alliance? How should we approach it? Because frankly, it's the worst case scenario for the United States to have to fight three Goliaths at once. Uh, it's it's almost like an uh, right. we don't want to have, have right. that. No, and, and I think that's exactly the frame that people should be looking at it through. Uh, for the first time in history, right? America's a young country. For the first time in America's history, it's fighting not one, not two, but three incipient empires, mm -hmm. right? Countries that want to recreate imperial glory. Yeah. Now- that were empires back in the day. They were empires. They want to be empires again, right? Some of them are not doing so well, right? <laughs> the Russians are not doing so well, but but the desire is there. So in order to, you have to come up with competitive strategies in order to avoid that. And I think this alliance uh, that you're talking about, I would actually characterize it not as an alliance, but as an alignment, right? Mm. Because I think you're right. I, I think over the long term, it's more competition between Russia and China than cooperation. But in the near term, they can get a lot by jointly opposing the United States. Um, and th this is, uh, there is, and, you know, to sort of to go back to, to the question of, um, uh, that we were talking about before, it's sort of the, the question of disinformation. One of the most striking things about the disinformation sphere that you see, right? We talked about Russia, but there's authoritarian learning going on. There is cooperation between Russia and China and Iran in the disinformation space. They are learning tactics. They're learning strategies. They're amplifying each other's narratives with a shared goal. The shared goal is to sort of break down trust in Western institutions. It's this sort of zero sum game where they understand that they collectively become stronger if we become weaker. Mm. Um, and so by that metric, frankly, we're not doing very well, yeah. right? Um, the sort of, the, a couple of vignettes that I would point out uh, that really sort of showcase how we're falling down on the job. The, the first is a strategic one. It's, it's the question of great power competition between the US and China. Um, the, what's fascinating to me is that, you know, we, we now have successive U.S. administrations that, that have adopted this as sort of the orienting frame of American strategy, right? The Trump administration did it, the mm -hmm. Biden administration in its new national security strategy, which was- You're talking out, about GPC? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, is, is sort of, you know, it's the alpha and the omega. And yet we're not actually doing great power competition, yeah. right? So, you know, the sort of the thought well, exercise well, I always- Well, maybe we're not competing. Well, right. No, this is right. And, 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 and by the way, we're not competing seriously. So we're putting it in the strategies, the term. Put, and, yeah. yeah. So we're talking about <laughs> it. Talking about it. We're talking it. about it. We're not doing it. So the, the sort of the thought yeah. exercise I always do is imagine if you're a, uh, the leader of an uh, authoritarian African nation and you, for your own personal reasons, you decide you don't want Chinese tech penetration. You don't want Chinese national champions like Huawei or ZTE or whoever to build your 5G network. But you have all these domestic pressures. You have this young population, right? Africa is the youngest continent in the world. You have massive birth rate, right? Population explosion. They're all hungry. They all want, want something. They want innovation. So you say, you turn to the United States and you say, hey, listen, we don't want to be in bed with the Chinese. What's your alternative? And if we don't have an alternative, we're not even in the conversation, right? We are not uh, really competing. We're mm. talking about, right? We're the aspirational power. Mm. The Chinese are the present power, mm. right? So that's one way in which, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're falling down, yeah, yeah. right? There's this unity of purpose on the part of China, but also unity of purpose on the part of the authoritarians that we just don't. 
have. I wanted to say something about the the approach to GPC and everything. And, you know, the NSS just came out about a month ago or so. Uh, that's the national security strategy for those that aren't from the DC yeah, right. lingo that's speak yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I'm getting too comfortable with a lot here. Um, you know, this whole narrative about democracies versus authoritarians, and I agree, the authoritarians are definitely learning from one another, looking at best tactics and best practices. But what I do have a problem, not only a problem, I, I, what I feel like is trouble with that narrative uh, because it, they, a lot of people like equated to the Cold War with capitalism or socialism, right? These two currents. But there's a marked difference between that era and this era in terms of how those two different uh, uh, concepts are being sold. In the case of there was people during the Cold War in countries even that would actually openly and publicly advocate for socialism or communism in that case, right? They're like raising the communist flag and say, this is the system of government we want. That doesn't happen with authoritarians, right? There's not openly saying authoritarian, go authoritarians, let's, let's bring it here. Um, most authoritarian countries, if not all authoritarian countries in the world call themselves democracies, right? They use the word democracy. And so the challenge of putting that as a narrative in, in terms of messaging and public uh, uh, diplomacy is that it doesn't really offer anything, right? The democracy versus authoritarian narrative, right? It's like saying, don't do business with them because they're authoritarian. Okay, we understand that Russia or Iran's authoritarian, but now you're going to call Guatemala an authoritarian too? Right, right. And it's just like, 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 so now we're defining democracy or we're cherry picking who's a democracy. When I feel like we're missing the beat on actually trying to explain what are the differences Absolutely. between the no, democratic no, no. model I, that I, we're proponing for and this right. kind of false democracy that, you know, the, the, uh, North Korea Democratic Republic would propose for yeah. right. I, I think that's uh, that's absolutely right, and and you know we you can get away from this sort of trap, this cul-de-sac by talking about uh, not slogans but values, right? Transparent government and good governance and anti-corruption and things like that. Things uh, conversations where the authoritarians can't follow, yeah, because that's their lifeblood. Yeah, they won't right? they won't they won't go right. there. Yeah, right, exactly. But I mean, frankly, we have a more fundamental problem, which is that. We're having this, you know, we're here in D.C., we're having this conversation um, like a lot of people have in D.C. every day, and they only talk to each other. So one, yeah. of, the, one of the sort of the, the, the biggest problems that I've always uh, or I've seen for years is that public diplomacy is an afterthought. Public diplomacy, uh, the idea that America needs to explain the strategic rationale for a move that it made in the Middle East or in Africa or in Latin America or whatever it is to a skeptical global audience is sort of... I mean, it's something that, you know, journalists at the Voice of America or journalists at Radio Free Europe or whatever that they do, but nobody else does it. Mm. And these guys have a tremendously hard time getting U.S. officials to come on their airways to explain, to sort of to contextualize what's actually happening. Do you think is that we think we don't need to do that or, or are we just uh, not focused on it? Why, why aren't we doing this? So I, I think it's a little bit of both, right? I, I, I think there's that, that end of history. Oh, we're yeah. end of history. Everybody's on the same page, but we're not. Everybody loves them. America. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we're not on the same page. And part of it is this sort of, uh, you know, sort of the tyranny of the inbox, right? These guys are, yeah. all these guys are sort of working, they're crafting policy. Who's got time to go, you know, sell the policy, right? Yeah. Um, and so it becomes somebody else's problem. And, and so what you end up with is a public diplomacy, information warfare enterprise in the American government that is minuscule compared to what the Russians are doing, compared yeah, to what yeah. the Chinese are doing, right? So if we, even if we wanted to outshout these guys, we wouldn't be able to, right? We don't have the resources. We don't have the bureaucracy. We don't have, you know, we don't have uh, the sort of the state investiture in this type of messaging, yeah. right? So one of the biggest hurdles I see is, right, at some point we're going to get an administration that's serious about global influence, that's serious about messaging, whatever it is, and they're going to have to build 
Build it from scratch, almost, yeah. Yeah, yeah, almost. Yeah. So talk about that because that's one of the things that you worked on, especially during the last administration. Right. Uh, you were nominated to actually right. uh, uh, serve in the Board of Governors of the last administration for the U.S. Agency of Global Media, if I'm uh, correct. Right. I know they always change the names on me. So <laughs> right. Acronyms change here in D.C. Right. pretty quick. Uh, you got to stay up on it. Um, talk to us a little bit about that because I think that answers the second part of that question, which was what should we do uh, differently uh, right. when a more, um, let's put it this way, more responsible administration comes into power that actually wants to dedicate time and effort to basically create the U.S.'s images in a way that actually works uh, against these authoritarians worldwide. Right. Well, so in order to know where you're going, right, it, it sort of it makes sense to look at where we were, right? So during the Cold War, during the decades of the Cold War, we, have a, we had a unitary agency called the U.S. Information Agency, which was essentially the quarterback um, that sort of spearheaded all of the global media initiatives and, and was the one, the one that was sort of convening and sort of oversaw all the agencies. When the, aimed at the most at that time, mostly on the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mostly. Although, although not also on the periphery, right? Okay. Uh, this is sort of this is the era where you know Radio Marti, yeah, for yeah, example, from came Cuba. About. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So not just, but yeah, mostly, mostly mm -hmm. behind the Iron Curtain, right? And the goal was to, twofold. The goal was to tell America's story, right, which is what Voice of America does, and the goal was to do surrogate um, radio, surrogate television. Uh, so that's what Radio for Europe does, mm -hmm. and by that they mean uh, to tell stories in those mediums that because you're in an unfree country, your state media won't tell. So we're mm. gonna tell stories about Russia, about the Soviet Union that Soviet media won't tell mm. because it's a bad news story. Mm. Um, so those are still the, the sort of the broad frames that you have, but with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you saw this massive disaggregation. It doesn't right? exist anymore. The no, US, no, yeah. the, right, in 1999, the USA uh, Information Agency went away and in its place came this sort of hybrid structure, half public, half private, mostly bureaucratic. And you saw this massive attrition of strategic vision. So you mm. get this weird situation now where, yeah, we have an agency, the US Agency for Global Media, but uh, you also have all these uh, grantees, uh, all these different uh, sort of radios and television yeah. stations, whatever it is, that get money from the US government, but they're private entities. They're all off doing. Um, there are, uh, you know, the CEO of, of the US Agency for Global Media is supposed to oversee um, but every year it's this sort of this fight, like, you know, you go to Congress and like, well, we don't know what these agencies are doing. You know, are they getting enough money? Are they not yeah. getting enough money? You know, whatever it is. If there's no overarching frame. There's no mm -hmm. urgency to what they're doing, right? It's not a coincidence that the U.S. Agency for Global Media ranks dead last in the rankings of U.S. government departments is that right? in terms of uh, uh, sort of desire to work there, right? Favorable work environment, wow. right? A hazardous I, work environment? Yeah, well, not a hazardous, but 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 an undesirable work environment, okay. right? Why? Because, you know, it's sort of, you know, you're, you're sort of there. There's no mission. There's nobody at the top the morale. telling you. Yeah, well, morale. Yeah. Nobody uh, at the top telling you, uh, you know, here's the mission, Right. During the Cold War, that wasn't the case. During the Cold War, it was, sense very, of clear. Purpose, it was yeah, very clear. Yeah. It was a sense of purpose, right? Communicating the ideas of freedom behind the Iron Curtain to unfree societies, trying to move the needle on global discourse, right? And that's not what you yeah. have now. Can you, can you reform it or is it is it a little bit? So, so that's, <laughs> no, no, so, so that's a big that, question. That's, but... that's really the, the sort of the, the center of gravity to all yeah. the discussions, right? So everybody has their different idea, right? Some people say, hey, we got to bring the US, uh, US Information Agency back. Uh, other people say, hey, we have to create an, a new agency. Uh, a third group of people say, hey, we need a information czar at the National Security Council, right? Everybody has a mousetrap, right? They're all mm -hmm. sort of trying to figure out how to uh, how to do it. Um, the problem is they, whatever structure, right? I'm, I'm not sort of, you know, I could be convinced on, on any one mm -hmm. of these pathways, but you're missing a key ingredient. You're missing a chief executive that understands that this is a problem. Yeah, that, the that, president. Well, we yeah. Ha, yeah, that we have to communicate. Mm -hmm. You know, 
what America is, what America is all about, and why America is better, and why America is, is advancing, and why you should frankly be on America's side instead of on Beijing's side, instead of on Moscow's side, right? That we don't have, and that's the, to me, that's the secret sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, well, the, they say the chief executive, the, the the president of the United States, often is the chief salesman as well uh, yeah, for the country, right? That's the one that goes out and has to sell America to the world. So let, let me pivot a little bit. And we're going to start to wrap a little up, but I want to pivot a little bit on some of the stuff that we've done together because we've had a sure. long history going to Latin America. Uh, and actually, this is the point where I think we'd be good to 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 bring some of our uh, beverages of choice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know. Elon's a whiskey guy. I have a whiskey. Uh, guy. I'm more of a rum guy, a but I'm happy guy. to do whiskey. So we're gonna have two whiskeys that they're, they're gonna come out. We're gonna little taste testing. And then I have to drive home. Yes, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, right. In traffic though. Right, right, right. Now, so not, it, not quickly. It hurts and helps. Right. So, um, but but let me say this. Um, no, I have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of great memories of the times we we would travel a lot together in in Latin America, um, but we've seen it in other places in Israel and other places. But I want to tell one story because I think it's right, really, right. really interesting. <laughs> and I think you know which one I want to tell. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm between two, but I'll tell one and you probably end up telling the other. The one I want to tell about is, um, uh, you know, so when Elon uh, and I started to move to Latin America, like move to travel Latin America, he uh, depended on me a lot to do a lot of the arrangements because it's the region that I work on. So uh, I'm good at creating meetings and, you know, having opportunities to be able to speak and things like that and engage our partners and our friends in the region. Logistics may not be my strong point. <laughs> so one of the things that, what, what, one of the things. They're getting ready. Yeah, that, 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 that sounds of joy <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the right. kitchen. Um, well, one of the things that I, I did was like uh, getting the flights and all right, this right, stuff right, like right, that. Right, so, right. And, and, and I remember we took a, a trip. We were going to go from Chile to Bolivia, which is in South America, which are next to each other. And you would think that it's like an easy flight from right. Santiago to La Paz, but it's not. Right. You have to take a, a detour. You got to find uh, another country, another city to be able to do a layover. And so we found one which was called Equique in the northern right. part of Chile. So I was like, okay, you know, Chile is a developed country. Chile is right. one of the top countries in the region. So I was like, it can't be that bad. You? And uh, we had the flight. So the fl I didn't mess up the flight. The flight was fine. Uh, what I didn't do was so much good on was the hotel. <laughs> so I was like, and actually we talked about it before. Like, we'll just find a hotel. We'll get, when we get there, there'll be plenty of hotels. It's on the beach. We'll get some hotel down there. So we get there and there was like one nice hotel, right. which we went straight to. Right. And of course what happens, it was like, I don't know, beach week in, uh, hold on, <laughs> it's getting too, it's getting too uh, fun over there yeah, in the kitchen. Right. Um, it was like beach week in, uh, in, in Iquique, Chile. And that hotel was completely booked up. Right. So they're like, oh, we're with the cab driver. And he's like, well, what do you guys, well, there's some other hotels down the way. So we went and, and, and let's say the, the category hotel went for me like category five, like say the five, no, five star hotel. So maybe like two, two and right. then one and then none. And then so we're like, and so we're going, and I remember I even walked out of the car and I was like, okay, I, I'm going to rush because we got to get a hotel. And I dropped my passport right. like in the middle of the street. Right. And I was like, you might need this. Right. So we get in and we got, I think it was like a, a, a part-time massage parlor, maybe it was, something it was like something. that. It was, it was, uh, no, no. What I recall about that trip most of all was, was, uh, that was one of the few nights, uh, where I had to pay to stay in a hotel and I slept the, the night in my clothes. Cause I was on top of the sheets. <laughs> I, I do not trust this place. And in the morning, um, 
because I was running more diligently yeah. then than I am now, I went out for a run and I had to cut my run short because there was so much broken glass on the ground that I realized <laughs> that like our trip would be fundamentally detoured if I had to go to the hospital because I fell or I tripped or what, you know whatever it is. So this is maybe not the nicest place. Oops, sorry. Maybe not the nicest place that we've been to. No, it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, it was fun though. It was, fun. it was only one night. You know, we're being kind of whiny, but it was it was one night, but it, <laughs> but, it, but it was an interesting night. And we actually went out and it was interesting when the, the, the place where we had our, our dinner cost more than the night that we paid in the hotel. So that, that's the kind of the story I wanted to talk about Santiago, Chile, but we have a bunch of stories. I mean, you told one recently, I think, where were we at? I can't remember where we were at. Oh, the dinner, we were one of our dinners and uh, you told the story about uh, some of our close encounters. Speaking of authoritarians, we you know, right. there's a lot of authoritarians in Latin America. You guys know who they are. It's Nicolas Maduro from Venezuela, right. Daniel Ortega from Nicaragua, Evo Morales from Bolivia. Right. Can't ever exclude the Castros from right. uh, Cuba. And so we used to go back then uh, to some of these. Oh, here we go. Thank you. Here we go. Which 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 one are we gonna try? We'll tell that story in a second. But which one are we gonna try first? I, I think the the one I gave you. The, okay. Yeah, this, uh, the, the French. One. This was a very just, just a little though. I gotta drive. Yeah. So. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is uh. Well, tell us what this is. You're so, the whiskey so, guy. So I, I was uh, I am the whiskey guy. So so this is something new that I discovered. Um, I was recently in North Africa and uh, I flew back on Air France and this is what they had on Air France. Um, and uh. This is uh, much France, just French whiskey, French whiskey, but but uh, French blended whiskey. But I uh, I'd never heard of it before. But it was so good that I now buy it for all okay. my friends. So well, 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 let's do it. How, how do you pronounce it? Belvoy, I think. Belvoy, I think. My I French, my French is just delicious. Rougher than my Russian. Oh, that's that's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I can see it. I was like, there you go. There you go. You, I think you might have started a tradition here at the podcast. Yeah, I, listen, I don't think I've listen, done this before, but listen, cheers, cheers. If we can, if we can, do <laughs> <laughs> cheers, <laughs> cheers, cheers, salute. Thank you. Oh, smooth. Yeah, it's nice. It's right? smooth. It's nice. Surprising. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not bad at all. Um, so, so, yeah. so authoritarians right. in the neighborhood. So we ran into a couple. Do you remember? Do you remember? You know where I'm I, going? I, I do. Yeah. I do. I do. So, um, I so I have a couple of stories. Right? Yeah. My favorite stories. Um. Uh, let me tell the Bolivia one first because because okay, okay, yeah. we were just there, right? Yeah, we, yeah. Chile to Bolivia. So, um, as I'm sure your your listeners and your viewers know, um, the La Paz, uh, the capital of Bolivia, is on the, uh, sort of uh, on the Altiplano, yeah. right? It's, uh, it's sort of it's very high. highest capital in the world, highest <laughs> capital in the world. And so, long haul flights, uh, airline flights, have trouble um, getting there. Uh, and so, the industrial capital of the country is to the east in Santa Cruz. Uh, right, much more low lying, much flatter, and so uh, flights are easier to get into. So we spent some time in La Paz, and then we went to Santa Cruz. Yep. And in Santa Cruz, the airport is right outside the city. And if yep. you go out of the exit of the airport uh, and you take a left, you go to Santa Cruz, and you take a right, you go into a small dusty town called Juanes. Yeah. Right, and Juanes is important because Juanes is the site of the. Alba Defense School. Yeah, the, yeah. the defense school. The, of, Alba is the Bolivarian right. Alliance of the Americas, Bolivar right? The Bolivarian authoritarian Alliance. Alliance of Latin America. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to go see it. Uh, you, you <laughs> He's were, like, take a right, take yeah, a right. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, you don't go to go left. You're like, no, take a right. No, take a right. Because I wanted to go see it because the Alba School hadn't been um, inaugurated yeah. yet, but it had been built. Yeah. And it had been built not with Bolivian dollars mm. and not with Venezuelan money. They've been built with Iranian money, yeah. right? Iranian seed money. And kind of kind of quasi-inaugurated by an Iranian defense minister at the time, who is now, I think, the interior minister, if I'm not mistaken, of Iran today, which is Akhmad Vahidi. 
Right. Is, is he the interior minister still? I, I, I don't know. I, okay. have to, I have to check. But but yeah, no. And, and and I remember it was such a it was a, a big international scandal because there was an Interpol red notice. Yeah, for, for so the bombings in Argentina. Right. Yeah. So he went to inaugurate the site, and it caused an international incident. Um, but the reason this is significant is because it really going to that school and, and, uh, Joseph, uh, we got very close. We, 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 got very <laughs> we tried close. to go in, we got very we tried close. to go in. It was a little and, difficult. And Joseph is an intrepid scout. And so he jumps out of this, uh, this rickety car that we're in and he's snapping all these pictures and then he gets in the car. He goes, go, go, go. You know? yeah. so, no, cause there's a military guy yeah, that started running towards us and I was like, okay, the picture's done. Let's go. Right. No, but, but the reason we wanted those pictures and the reason we wanted to see it was because we, both of us jointly were advancing this contention that frankly, people in Washington didn't want to hear or weren't prepared to hear. Or weren't believing at the time, right, back exactly. then. They weren't, like, they, you know, the defense minister goes to, uh, right. at the time, the Iranian defense minister who has Interpol red notice because he was a te he supported one of the major terrorist attacks right. in Latin America. He uh, comes to Bolivia. No, for one, no one in DC knows where Bolivia is or cares right. about where Bolivia is. Right. So they're like, okay, that's weird. Two, they, a lot of people didn't believe it. Say, okay, maybe that's just some like pro forma thing. It doesn't really have any strategic significance or relevance. But like, but it's not just about uh, that one visit, right? It's about this school. It's about what they're doing with the school, about this alliance, about the whole thing. And then we can see now today, I mean, Iranians going to Bolivia pretty much every week. So right. that, that, that alliance is But back then, it was, they, weren't, it was sort yeah. of, they weren't. It was very new. And it was sort of proof of concept for something that you and I had been talking about and we we're trying to socialize in D.C., which is that, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Yeah. And so an Iran, which in Washington was at that time really seen almost exclusively in the Middle East context, was actually partnering to a much deeper extent than we thought with other like-minded authoritarians in other parts of the world, including in Latin America, yeah. right? where, where, where they were building at least tactical, sometimes strategic partnerships um, right. They, uh, this was right around the time when Iran was being squeezed by U.S. sanctions, by European sanctions, and they were sort of going around the periphery. They were, they were saying, okay, fine, we can't uh, play in the European markets, but we can go down to uh, to the Americas. Absolutely, absolutely. And actually, I, I would say that. And um, let me give context on this. Uh, that was very early on. I think he actually wrote an article about that, uh, and then uh, I wrote some other stuff about Iran and Bolivia, and I and I've argued that. Bolivia has been Iran's most successful case study in Latin America and probably one of the most successful in, in the world. Now, most people know today about Iran and Venezuela because that's what it's more visible. But uh, Iran already had a presence in Venezuela, even before the Islamic Republic because of OPEC and the oil deals. So Iran had an embassy in Caracas for a long time. In La Paz, they had nothing prior to 2007. There was no presence of Iran. So they went from zero to 100, where they're now a, probably one of the top partners to the Bolivian government in a matter of about seven, eight years. And so it was a very tre tremendous foreign policy success for them in terms of their diplomatic presence, their economic presence, now even military presence, being that Bolivia is one of the three military countries in, uh, I'm sorry, one of the three countries in Latin America that has a military presence of Iran permanent in the, in the no, country. That, that's right. And, and you remember uh, what happened, right? So before we ended up uh, in Santa Cruz, we were in La Paz and we went to talk yeah. to the folks at the U.S. Embassy. Um, and before we did that, we did our due diligence and we walked around the one square city block of La Paz that was then taken up by the Iranian embassy and the Iranian compound. And it was yeah. huge, right? It was huge, uh, yeah. Sort of facilities for hundreds of people. And then we we sort of, we shuffled off and we went to have coffee with uh, the folks at the U.S. Embassy. And I remember me bringing it up saying, you know, what about the Iranian presence? And they were sort of poo-pooing us and they weren't. Uh, and I asked, the question I asked them was, hey, have you ever seen their embassy? Right? Because it's, I don't know, it's not half, far. half yeah. a mile, right? And they're like, oh, no, 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 we haven't seen, right? This lack of inquisitiveness to me is a recipe for 
strategic surprise. Yeah, surprises, right? correct. Yeah, yeah. And and so so I, I think you're absolutely right. This is uh, sort of uh, really important. Yeah. The other important story, <laughs> right? right um, I'm gonna take another sip on no, that. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Um, the other important story. So um, Joseph and I were, uh, this was, I, I don't even remember which year, but we were in Managua, Nicaragua. It must have been like 2013-ish. Uh, yeah. yeah. And- uh, Because, um, no, I was going to say, because Fidel Castro was obviously still alive, but right. it was Raul Castro. Well, I'm not going to spoil the story, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, that's right. Um, and uh, so for those uh, viewers, listeners that don't know, right? So Monago, Nicaragua suffered a uh, earthquake uh, in the, I think it was the 1970s. Um, and so they picked up and they moved the capital like a kilometer and a half, right? So it creates this really weird dislocated hotel structure, right? So whatever, uh, for whatever reason, the hotel we were staying at was sort of on the outskirts of town. Yeah. We pull up, it's all cordoned off. There's all these- police And there's only like two nice hotels right. in Monaco, so. Right, and it's cordoned off. And there's all these police vehicles and- That's right, the cab couldn't drop us no, off no, at the no, front no, of the hotel. We're, we're, we're carrying- Like get your luggage, and climb the hill. Right, exactly. And we get into the lobby and Joseph goes quiet. And Joseph is never quiet. <laughs> We're, we're always sort of bantering. And I said, well, Joseph, what's the matter? And he said, look over there, right? And it was a delegation uh, led by the president of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, and he was leading around Nicolas Maduro, right, with a coterie of folks who were not Venezuelan. Or they, Nicaragua. Or Nicaragua. <laughs> they were Cuban intelligence yeah. agents, right? And for me, as someone who uh, who is sort of not steeped in Latin American culture, that was a real wake-up call in terms of the long reach of history, right? Because yeah. in the United States, there's this conceit that, you know, the past is the past and it'll stay in the past. And so this idea that Cuba is not important anymore permeates virtually every discussion you have about Latin America yeah. in contemporary circles in Washington. And yet here I was in Managua, right? Watching the president of Nicaragua effectively bend the knee to the Venezuelans and the Cubans, yeah, right? In joint much. fashion, in joint fashion. And it really, uh, right? Uh, what, what do they like to say? The... Um, uh, the past, uh, was it the past is not forgotten. The past isn't even really the past. Okay. Right? And that's sort of, uh, that's sort of how I felt where I was like, oh, now I understand sort of the cold war discussions and I don't know why we got away from those. Yeah. No. And actually, so you guys, uh, can really kind of visualize this. And I have some pictures of that. I really started, I pretended I was a journalist. I just started snapping pictures. Um, and like you guys, to, to understand the context and trying to visualize this, we're at the Sheraton hotel in Managua, Nicaragua in the lobby, it's not like a huge space. And Nicholas Maduro, who's huge, by the way, if you're watching this Maduro, you're, you're a very big man. Uh, he's very large. Uh, and I actually physically ran into him, actually. I ran into him a little bit, because he was coming out. And uh, the Cuban intelligence agents, there were some that were ununiform, without uniform, and there was some that were with uniform, that were Cuban military that had uh, uniforms on. And I remember when we looked at this, and I was paying attention a lot, not so much to Maduro and Ortega, who were at the front, but who all the military people were and who they were communicating with. And they were communicating mostly with the local police. And and I can't, I mean, I'm not listening to their conversations. I'm not that close, so I couldn't really tell. But it seemed to me as if they're giving orders to the local police. Usually when you do a, a host nation delegation, it's the opposite. It's the local host nation country that's giving directions to the visiting country to tell them how to operate because it's their country. Like if, even the United States, when the United States goes to, pick a country, right? Morocco. It's the Moroccan police forces. They're going to guide us and tell us that you can do this, that, don't move here, that, that's dangerous, don't do that. But this is seemed like the other way. The Cubans were like, 
do this, don't do that, do this, do that. And they're guiding these uh, local police from Nicaragua that were accompanying Daniel Ortega. So, so we get very, so we're not just, we don't talk about authoritarians. We got really close to a few of the authoritarians. We go to watch it. I've taken it along to Latin America. We're going to get along back to Latin America at some point. He's, you know, he's uh, very busy nowadays. You know, you got a war in Ukraine. You got Iran that's on the premises of doing some type of actions in the Middle East. Maybe, maybe Iraq is next year because of the anniversary uh, of the U.S. invasion. Um, but we'll get you back in Latin America sometime. Alana, it was, it was quite a joy to have you here. Um, I enjoyed it. Now, where can anyone follow you? How can they follow The AAPC has sure. a website. We'll put sure. that in. So again, uh, American Foreign Policy Council, we're online at www.afpc.org. Uh, you can follow my work. I- I'm there. I'm also on Twitter, at Elon Berman. Is that the social media you use most? Uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> I-, I-, I feel like Twitter is- uh, Your Twitter I- game's not bad, though. I got to say. I like you. it. No, yeah. no, I-, I appreciate that. I, I sort of- It's I- very witty. I- sometimes I feel like I'm I'm screaming my outrage into the, into the ether. but. Um, but yeah, I'm on Twitter and uh, we, AFPC does a lot of stuff on social media as well. But uh, our think tank covers the gamut. So so my work day to day, I do Russia, I do Iran, I do terrorism stuff. But we have scholars on China, yeah. scholars on South Asia, scholars on Europe, uh, you know, sort of everything. So we, we try to cover the waterfront. Um, so if- any, any new reports, anything coming out that you want to plug? Uh, well, so it, it's a good, there's always, there's always a new oh, report, yeah. but, um, my colleague, Rich Harrison, uh, who, you know, uh, is, uh, just, uh, co-authored a, a really, what I think is going to be a really important book on, uh, space strategy and, oh, and, yeah. sort of, and, 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 yeah. and, uh, China as being the pacing threat, meaning yeah. the, and th- this is the fifth domain, right? This is very no, important. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And, and about how China really, unlike the United States, has an evolved multidimensional strategy to dominate space and what that would actually mean if they were successful and how do you sort of, how do you catch up? Yeah. Um, and so my, my, it's going to be, it, it'll come out next year, but my sense is that it'll, uh, it'll really sort of reshape the debate. Conversation. Yeah. But good. And another book coming out. I mean, Elon's had, I don't know how many books you have a lot of books. You have no, books no, no, on no. Russia, so, books so, on Iran. So what One I'm, of the other really good ones, just yeah, to go interrupt real quick, the implosion book, we're going to put the link to that in uh, Amazon, the, the people that want to buy that, the one we talked about, about the demographics in Russia that was ahead of its time. But it's a really good read though. It's really, really, really insightful. Um, a lot of books on Iran. Is there one in particular you think that people should look as a primer to understand? Yeah, so so I, I did a book, I think 2015, called um, Iran's Deadly Ambition, okay. right? Which is which is all about sort of what we were talking about today, sort of the ideology, the expansionist nature, right? Not of Russia, but uh, of Iran and sort of how that plays globally. And so, you know, what are the different strategies that Iran is taking in Latin America? What are the different strategies that Iran is taking in Africa and all these places, other places, right? So I, I think that's a good primer for, sort okay. of, you know, getting to know. And what I'm working on now is I'm doing the, uh, a big study on uh, Russian disinformation, right? What, well, what's, cool. the, what, what's the West's response to Russian disinformation? Because the the problem that I, I see is that uh, we we Americans, I, I like to always say, we Americans have an urgency problem and we have an agency problem. Yeah. We It takes us a long time to figure out that we have a problem. And when we have a problem, it's urgent. It's a crisis. <laughs> like we have to, you know, we have to fix it. And because we're America, we have to fix it. Yeah. Nobody else can fix it, right? And so what you get lost in that discussion is the, the fact that Russian disinformation doesn't just affect us. It affects Europe. It affects, you know, it affects countries that have been dealing with it for a lot longer. So what I'm going to try to do, and, and I'm working with one of our, one of our fellows, and we're, we're jointly trying to sort of put this together, is to do a mapping exercise on what are the different governments doing in response to Russian disinformation, uh, what does Russian disinformation look like now? Where, where were we? What does it look like? What are okay. the main themes and narratives? And then what are the lessons learned? 
Very interesting. So, that's so very that, interesting. that'll be out. Is it, is it a study that's going to come out? Yeah, it'll, it'll be out uh, mid-year. Uh, okay. And well, again, right, uh, I have, we haven't gotten into the thick of writing yet, so I don't know if it's going to be a study that's published by AFPC or if it's going to be a book, book. Or, or whatever it is, but but that's sort of- We'll be on the lookout. I mean, yeah. so AFPC.org, it'll be on our show notes. You guys can look at it. Uh, we'll put a link to Elon's book, Amazon, his social media, at- Elon Berman, yeah. Elon Berman, B E R M A N. There we go. Elon's a pleasure to have you on the show on the podcast. And oh, he didn't even promote. He has a podcast. I do. A very cool podcast, actually. Kind of. We're border wars because we talk a lot about how sovereign nation states are being attacked essentially by authoritarian actors. But he has a book specifically about what he's just talking about. I mean, I'm sorry, book. He has a podcast he's talking about, which is called Disinformation Wars. Right. So, so it's sort of an interesting exercise. And and unlike unlike this, this is border wars is like. It's, it's a whole, it's a whole it's thing. A whole it's a whole thing. production. Yeah. It's a whole thing. Uh, ours is sort of an instrumentality. So, so my podcast, right, comes out uh, twice a month, but it's all talking to interesting people uh, about different nuances of sort of the the information warfare space. Yeah, it's very important. And very important. Uh, what it allows me to do is it allows me to do sort of primary source interviews. It allows me to sort of you know to to build a, a resilient network, but it also allows me to sort of to amplify stories that are important. Like for example, the fact that there is a um, there is now, as a result of the Ukraine war, the internal Russian media environment has gotten un- so unfree that there's been this exodus of journalists from yeah. Russia. And so there's now this dissident media sphere and they're That's headquartered in Prague, mm-hmm. headquartered in Latvia, right? But they're new, but it's, you know, outlets like uh, iStories, outlets like Medusa and mm. Project and The Insider. Um, and, you know, it's an opportunity, right? Because think about it, right? The Vladimir, as you said before, uh, Vladimir Putin's war is, is popular, but it's becoming less popular, mm-hmm. right? Because nothing succeeds like success and he's not winning. Yeah. So those people, in the, the, the growing number of people that are getting disenchanted with the war, who are they going to turn to for news? They're not going to turn to the Ukrainian media and they're not necessarily going to turn to the Western media. They're going to turn to the Russian media. So mm-hmm. incubating that ecosystem getting it to be louder, getting it to be professional, getting them, you know, all these journalists access to the right officials, whatever it is, lets them beam back really good stories that can really move the needle on politics within Russia itself. Uh, that's awesome. So where can they listen to this information? Sure. So it, uh, we're on sort of all the major platforms. And so it's Apple, just, uh, Spotify, uh, Apple, Spotify, Ooh, sorry, Apple, the microphone's Spotify. dangerous. I know, I know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the, it's the, way. Um, uh, Apple, Spotify, uh, Google podcasts, um, all that. So it's Disinformation Wars um, and uh, hope yeah. you'll join us. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. It, Disinformation Wars. And um, if you're new to the channel, be sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the like button and share the uh, this, this video with others. Um, if you, uh, I'll say this. If you give us, for this thousand likes, let's go with a thousand likes. You give us a thousand likes. Not only will Alon be back on the podcast, he'll bring another bottle of whiskey. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, How about that? Okay. How about fair, that? Fair enough. We'll get cheers. 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 Subscribe to the Border Wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.